Good morning, everyone. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is where we'll be spending all of our time in this part of our worship this morning. Romans chapter 8. So good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for taking the opportunity and the time to be here, making the effort to come and be around a bunch of people you've never met before and uh, who are all wearing masks. And uh, that's got to be strange and scary a little bit, but we appreciate you being here. We're happy that you're here. We'd love to get to know you. If there's anything that we can do to help you to draw closer to God, any questions you have about what we do, we'd love to answer those. So please stick around for a minute. Let us get to know you a little bit, but thank you for being here. Uh, it was announced in our class in the back, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, word has trickled around to most of us, but just really saddened to hear uh, the passing sort of suddenly of Brother Millard Smith yesterday. And uh, the really um, sad uh, circumstance of throughout the hospitalization and everything, him not being able to have visitors and have his family uh, with him. Uh, just a really, really sad time. And uh, our hearts hurt for our sister Janie and our hearts hurt uh, for the, the loneliness of that and the, uh, the tragedy it is to not be able to be with our loved ones in times of need. That's also happening in the, the Copeland family where they're not able to be together, Betty and, Basil and, and uh, Basil and his sons not able to be together, at least not physically. And there's something that's so sad about us not being able to take the, the comfort and the encouragement we need physically from others in this uh, difficult time. But I do want to say, it is not a sad thing to know that a brother has gone home to be with the Lord. And we don't grieve as others who have no hope. And instead, we can have confidence that we've seen another brother who has gone home. And so we are sad in one sense, and in another sense, we rejoice. But it's certainly something that our, our hearts are heavy about uh, for this morning. I want to begin by reading in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans 8 and verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what a verse that is. I don't know if you've heard that verse before. I don't know if you have it highlighted in your Bible or you've heard it quoted, but it, it seems to hold an incredible promise. All things work together for good. But if you're anything like me, even as you read it, there's a part of your brain that is saying, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, all things work together for good? All things work together for good? We know that there's a great deal of evil in our world. We know that there are tragedies that go on every day. We see suffering. We experience suffering. Is Paul saying that that's good? That everything is really good? Just how does that work? I want us to take a few minutes this morning and really examine this idea of how all things work together for good. Because there is a promise here that will strengthen and help us. It will help you process the difficulties that you go through. It will help you understand God's ultimate purposes. But we have to do some work to make sure we're understanding it properly. And I want to do some of that work this morning. Paul is calling attention to a tendency that God has. And I want to begin here. You see verse 28. Verse 28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, he is not just saying that this is about fate that things just seem to work out, that all things just seem to work together. He is saying that God is behind this and God is doing this. In fact, some versions 
reads something like, God works all things together for good, or God works in all things for the good, something like that, that would say God is behind this. And I do believe, as we'll see in the context, that God is the one making things work together for good. So he is pointing out how God does that so that we can take encouragement from it. So what I want to do is kind of track with Paul through this text. And look at what God does. Look at what God turns into good. The first thing that he talks about that God turns into good is he turns present sufferings into glory. Look back in verse 16. We're going to jump all the way back to Romans 8 and verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if we are children, Paul says, then we are heirs. And we have touched on that a lot lately. We talked about you are an heir in one of the lessons that I preached on Wednesday night. You know, we've talked through this text about the the cross comes before glory. So I don't want to revisit all of that. But let me just say it this way. The idea of being an heir means that we stand to gain a great blessing. And that blessing is laid up for us. We are awaiting it. And the only condition, he says, in verse 17, is that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So there is present suffering. And so in verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So there's no comparison between what we're going through now and what we will have. It's so much greater that it makes this look like nothing. And Paul said, that's my mentality and my mindset going forward. I consider it unworthy to be compared. So what he does now is a little bit odd. He turns his attention to creation. And he says, look at creation and you'll understand something about our present situation. Verse 19, for verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what he is saying here is that even the creation is yearning and groaning in anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises to us, to his people. And there is groaning in that. So verse 20, he says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What he's talking about here is the curse that came back in Genesis 3, where God cursed the land because of Adam and Eve's sin. And so because of that, not only did people suffer separation from God, but the land suffered, the creation suffered itself. And everything has been under that curse since that time. And yet the implication, he says, is if it was subjected to futility, there was a hope that someday it would no longer be operating in futility. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that the creation will be free from its curse, free to be what God intended it to be. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the whole creation is groaning like a woman having a baby because the creation is anticipating what's to come, what's next. Boy, I wish I knew more about what Paul is talking about, don't you? I wish he had gone on and on. Instead, he's going to jump back into something else. 
I wish he would tell us just what exactly he's looking forward to. Is he saying that creation is going to be remade into a new place, new heavens and new earth? Is he saying there's going to be some kind of new dwelling where we're going to spend eternity and that it's going to in some way relate to the creation as we see it? I don't know. But Paul's point, I do know, is that the creation is groaning for glory, just like us. Every one of us has that feeling in us, like there is something more than what we observe, especially when we observe tragedy and suffering, especially when we hurt, especially when our bodies break down, especially when we see viruses ravaging our country, and we look at it and we say, is this it? Is this life? We live a few years. We try to survive for a little while, but eventually we just die. I mean, is that all? And there is a part of us that is groaning for something better. And he says, that's just like creation. Everything about present suffering points forward to something better. Verse 23 now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we have begun to experience the first fruits, he says, of the Spirit. We've begun to experience the deliverance of God, but we haven't seen the end of it. We've just begun. And so we are groaning for the completion of that. We're awaiting it eagerly. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what we see at the moment is not the fulfillment. What we see right now is suffering. But he says we hope for what we don't yet see and we wait for it with patience. So when we groan, And we are distressed by our circumstances and the events of our lives. What we need to remember is that this is what God does. God turns bad things into good. He turns present sufferings into glory. And our sufferings will not be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Our bodies will be redeemed. Our tears will be wiped away. Our pain will be soothed. What God does in all circumstances, all things work together for good. God says, I'm going to do it for you. Just wait. Wait for it with patience. The second thing Paul talks about in this text is the idea of our weakness and our ignorance that God turns into the Spirit's intercession. Look in verse 26 with me. Verse 26 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So he says, likewise, in verse 26, which connects it back to the previous. You know, you've got the groanings, you've got the, the incompleteness. And he says, in the same way, there's another situation that God's doing something for you. The Spirit helps in our weakness. And he says in verse 26, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Do you ever feel that way? That there are problems that you don't even know, you don't even know where to begin to ask uh, a group of us got together uh, a couple of weeks ago and had a little bit of a prayer meeting. And uh, a lot of our prayers center around what's going on in our country. And I told the guys, I, I don't even know what to ask. I don't even know what to pray for. I just ask that God would, would do what he knows is best. Sometimes we are just so, not just weak but ignorant. We don't even know where to begin. I mean, it's not that we don't know how to solve the problem. It's that we don't even know what to ask for to solve the problem. God says, I know. I'm aware of your weakness and your ignorance. And so here's what I've done. Verse 26. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts 
knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us. He communicates with things that are beyond words. He communicates the things that are in us that are beyond words. When we don't even know how to articulate what we are feeling and what we are needing, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And he takes those things to God. God, he says, the one who searches the hearts, God hears the Spirit and he understands the Spirit and so he connects us to God. He intercedes for us. He meets us more than halfway. Here is the point. Where our weakness and our ignorance could be a barrier between us and God. You know, I don't know what to ask for. I'm just not going to say anything. I don't know what to ask for. I'll keep quiet. Instead of it being a barrier, what it becomes is a place of greater intimacy between us and God. Where God knows our thoughts, our groanings. God knows what we're trying to say, but we don't know how to. It becomes a point of deeper communion because that's what God does. God takes our weakness and our ignorance and he turns it out of something bad into something good because all things work together for good for those who love God. And the Spirit's intercession is another way that happens. And here is the point where it's as if Paul, as he thinks through this, kind of steps back. And he's just kind of thinking about this. You know, here's God turning suffering into glory. Here's God taking the creation's curse and turning it into glory. Here's God taking our weakness and turning it into an intimate relationship. And then he says it, verse 28. You know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's as if he's saying, you know, everything is kind of this way. That when we love God, God turns everything into good in that same pattern. And he has one more example. And that example is the idea of being lost in sin and how God turns that into us being called and justified. Look at verse 29, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this verse probably sounds a little bit confusing to us. Because it's been co-opted. Some of these ideas have been co-opted into these intricate religious theological systems. And so there's some confusion about what the word means. But the point of these verses is that God has begun a work in saving us. And we can be sure he's going to complete it. So let's look at these words. In verse 28, verse 29, I'm sorry. For those whom he foreknew. Foreknowledge means that God has a relationship with people that he would call before they even existed. He knew who it would be, who he would call. And then it talks about, in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And to predestine something means that you determine what's going to happen to someone beforehand. You decide their fate before the fact. That's what the pre means. You destine them to a certain fate. In this text, it is that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of a son. That before we, he knew us, before even we existed, God decided, knew us, and then set us to a certain fate. And then he says in verse 29, verse 30 now, and those whom he predestined, he also called. That means to reach out or invite someone, usually through words. And in the case of the gospel, it's through the gospel and the preaching of the gospel that he calls us to him. In verse 30, those whom he called, he also justified. Justified means to declare or make someone righteous. This person is innocent. This person is right. 
And then in verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Gave an exalted position. Made something out of what they were not. So Paul's point here is God chose a people, knowing them before they were born, determining that they would be the ones who would become like his son. And then he called them to that through the gospel. And then he made them righteous through the blood of his son. And now some point, someday, he will glorify them. In some ways that's already begun. But there are ways in which it is yet to be consummated. The sense you get from these verses is that God has taken care of everything. From beginning to end, God did it all. Now, that doesn't mean, please don't misunderstand me, that doesn't mean that we don't have to respond in faith. There's nothing like that. We're really focused on what God does and how God does it, what we would call grace, and how God reaches out and God does the saving. God is taking care of everything. Meanwhile, what did we bring to the table in this whole relationship? Have you thought about it? I hate to, I was thinking about when Taryn was talking about Mephibosheth, bring to the table kind of makes it a pun, but what do we bring to the table? Well, I'll tell you what Paul says we bring to the table. In Romans 3, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We brought that. Romans 5 says that while we were ungodly, without strength, sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 7 describes how we became slaves of sin. We even might have wanted to do right, but we couldn't because we had gotten ourselves in such a pickle. So what did we bring to the table? We brought a whole bunch of lost in sin. We were helpless We were worthless, we were without strength, hopelessly, seriously, desperately lost. We couldn't help ourselves, we couldn't fix our problems, and in fact, the reason why we're here this morning, the reason why we have come to faith in Jesus, the reason why we got into the waters of baptism was because we couldn't do it for ourselves. We needed Jesus. But God took that and made it into something beautiful. God made it work together for good for us. All right, so take a step back from all of that. I know we've covered a lot of ground and a lot of verses here. When Paul says in verse 28 that all things work together for good for those who love God, he is saying that God is able to take any seeming negative and turn it into something that will bring about his will, which is ultimately for our good. Paul is not saying that everything that happens in the world is good. Paul is not saying that we will always see how everything that happens in the world fits into God's plan. He is saying that God has a track record of turning things, so many different things, from bad into good so that we can learn to trust him to do that for us Because God works all things together for good for those who love him. When we were lost in sin, we trusted that he could pull us out of that sin. When we are weak and ignorant, we trust that he's still able to deal with us. That the spirit is going to intercede for us. When we suffer, we trust that's just what we experience right now. But it's not going to dim the hope that we have that someday we'll have future glory. God has pulled out all the stops to pull us to him. He has left tremendous evidence of his interest in saving us. He has shown us over and over again, I want you. And if we ever begin to doubt it, we just need to go back and think about Jesus on the cross. God has shown us, I am reaching out to you. I'm meeting you more than halfway. 
if we focus on ourselves, do you notice what we bring? If we focus on ourselves, we bring suffering and weakness and ignorance and lostness. That's what we bring. So if we focus on ourselves, we're going to be awfully discouraged. And we're going to be awfully insecure. But if we focus higher on God's things and how God works all things together for good, we suddenly have confidence and we have hope. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time is just look at how that now affects us in the verses that follow, verses 31 down to verse 40. And the way I want to do this is to say that because God works all things together for good, what do we fear? And the first thing is that we fear no enemies. Look in verse 31 with me. In verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who do we need to fear? What enemy is there who really matters? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Of course, some people can still stand against us. But what he is saying is there's nobody who's going to stand against us that matters. If God is for us, what else matters? We've been studying uh, in our daily devotionals through the Old Testament and the story of Israel. And we've read through a lot of battles. And this, this doesn't take long to get the trend as you read through those battles. Our kids can get it in the Bible classes. Well, what matters about when Israel goes out to fight? There's only one thing that matters. Sizes of the army don't matter. You know, the, the form of combat, is it a giant versus a little guy with a slingshot? Is it a small army versus a big army? None of that matters. There's only one thing that matters. Is God with them. If God is for them, they always win. Period. Always. So that it, you, you start to read it that way. Where, you, you know, yeah, okay, they had a million men. Okay, whatever. But is God with the Israelites? That's the only question. If God is for us, who could be against us? So the big deal for us is not the enemies in front of us. The big deal is the fact that God has shown himself willing to be on our side. If God is for us, who could be against us? Now, that's a different perspective. Because remember, Paul is writing to people who live in the shadow of Caesar. Paul is writing as someone who will himself be martyred for his faith. He is not saying there's nothing to fear in a physical sense. He is saying if God is for us, then God can turn anything, even our deaths, into good. So it is not just that we say, oh, everything that happens is always good. That's not the case. But it is to say there's no enemy we need to fear because God is for us. Even in death, he works all things together for good. We fear no unmet needs. Look in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if God has shown, us so con- shown himself so concerned about our needs... That he gave us his son. The question in verse 32 is, what will he hold back? What will he not give us if he's already given us something greater? Now, please understand that that's not an unlimited promise. He's going to graciously give us all things. It doesn't mean we're all going to get a yacht. We're all going to get everything we could ever dream of physically. It means we're not going to have needs that God refuses to meet. Now, we might have a different definition of need than God. And maybe our definition of need needs some adjusting. But the point is that God's going to take care of us physically. God's going to give us the people that we need through our connection to Jesus and our brothers and sisters in Christ. God's going to give us the comfort and peace that we seek, the security that we seek. 
God's going to give us the direction that we need and the purpose we need for life. God will provide it all and at all times because God works all things together for good. And so when we have a need, God will meet it. Now, we may want more, but that's not really the issue here. He is saying if God is willing to give us what we need spiritually by offering his son, why would he let us die on the vine now? Why would he not provide the rest? We fear no accusations. Look in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if this is a courtroom, the the, the idea here is God is refusing to press charges. We're free to go. In fact, God is not only the one who refuses to prosecute, God actively comes to our defense. Jesus, the one who would have charges against us, is interceding for us. So everything is turned around. If God is for us, what do we have to fear? Who can be against us? So the charges are dropped. Our sins are resolved and forgiven. We are free to go. Accusations. Throughout the Bible, Satan is known as the accuser. Sometimes he accuses God, but most of the time he accuses God's people. He accuses them of doing wrong, and he tries to bring up our wrong and our evil and our insufficiency and in that way undermine our faith and our efforts for God. And we're afraid of that. I think we fear those accusations because we know there's truth to them. When Satan whispers things, he's usually right about us at least. And sometimes those accusations come from within us where we are saying the things that Satan has told us. Things like, you're not good enough. You could never do this. Why would God save you? You've done things that God would never forgive. These people don't love you. Nobody here wants to help you. And constantly the accusations come that we are not worthy. God has forever answered all the accusations because God says the charges are dropped. I'm on your team. All things work together for good for those who love God. Now that doesn't mean we keep pursuing sin, that we go back into our old way. That doesn't mean that. It means that when we love God and we try to serve him, we can do that without fear. No accusations. And we fear no separation. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Paul's preaching right now, he's on his soapbox. Can you hear it? Nothing can separate us. What robs us of our hope? What about anything that happens to us or that anybody says to us or does to us changes the fact that God loves us and wants to save us? Paul says nothing. There's nothing to fear. 
Now, that doesn't mean it's all easy. In fact, it's pretty specific that it's not easy. He quotes from this passage in verse 36. Uh, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's deeper than that. It means that God's going to provide the necessities of life, even if it's ugly. And even if it's close, in fact, we can expect that. But that doesn't mean that there's ever a separation between us and God. Nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God in Christ. There's security in that. There's hope in that. And there is also a way that that steals us for all the things that we face in life. And that's what Paul means when he says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. We may go through some of those things, but on the other side, there is hope. And all that's left is that final step, what Paul calls the glorification. We await the end where Jesus makes good all the promises that he's already started to fulfill. That's what Paul means when he says all things work together for good for those that love God. He does not mean that everything is good in itself. It's that God can take any circumstance and anything that happens in our lives and work it into his plan, which is ultimately for our good. So please understand me. It may be that we go through rough and frustrating circumstances here on earth. In fact, I think that's almost a certainty, isn't it? But all things work together for good. And it may be that we suffer the loss of our loved ones and we suffer our own physical ailments and that those things are only going to make us groan for a better body, the redemption of our bodies. But all things work together for good. It may be that we suffer persecution at the hands of our government. It may be that we suffer ostracism at the hands of our fellow citizens. But all things work together for good. All that does is make us groan more for the love of Christ from which we cannot be separated. So Paul is saying, it's not that we as Christians seek for a comfortable, easy life. And that's what God's really promising. You know, everything is going to be good for you. Instead, it's something far deeper. We might not achieve all our dreams. We might not set the world on fire. And yet, if we're on the same page as God, we have no need to fear. All things work together for good. I want to ask the question, what situations in your life does that speak to right now? In what ways do you look at your life and see weakness and ignorance? Do you see things out of control? Do you see people opposing you? Do you see circumstances you wish were different? And then ask the question, how can God work in those things to make good? What fears do you have of your government or of your society? What things are keeping you up at night? And how might it change to know, to be confident, to be certain that God works all things together for good for those that love him? Do you trust God about them? Are you willing to trust God so that you don't need to fear? I appreciate so much your attention this morning. I hope that these thoughts will help you. And if there is someone here this morning who is ready to turn their life over to the Lord Jesus, seeing all that he has done for you, hearing the great news of his grace and love that he has reached out in the person of his son, who has offered his life as a sacrifice for all of our sins, 
so that we can live in confident hope of a future glory where we'll live with him eternally. If you are ready to give your life over to him, this is a time that we have reserved so that anyone who has a need can come to the front and let us know about that need so we can help you to be right with God. So if you need the prayers of this group and you want us to hear about something that you're struggling with and and go to God in prayer on your behalf, please come and let us know about that. Or if you're ready to become a Christian and to be baptized into Christ, this is a time. Just come and let us know, and we'll do that right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.